0: So if you're here today and you uh, don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take one of those or uh, talk to one of our pastors and we'll get you one that is nicer that hasn't been loaded in out of a van for the last five years. Uh, but I'm I'm stoked to get into this and I wanna I wanna just invite you guys into this with me and I wanna pray before we jump into this. But but can we can we uh, agree that we're just gonna go a little hard this morning that we're gonna. We're going to let this text be what it is, and we're going to let it be a little spicy in our lives and let it kind of, kind of hit us. Is that cool? Yeah. Can we all just be all in on that to just go hard this morning with this text? Because um, I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's, it's a good text, and it's the kind of text that if you allow yourself to actually engage it, you, you know it's kicking you in the pants and it would be really easy for us to just kind of breeze past that and, and have a comfortable, cool, yah yah rally Sunday. And I, don't, I just don't want to do that. Is that cool? Yep. Can, can we all be beat up a little bit? rock and roll. Some of you who are visiting today are like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> let's pray and let's jump into this. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the gift of your church. Thank you that we are sitting in a public space and we are worshiping you and we're digging into your word, God. This morning, we, uh, we want to lift up with solidarity our brothers and sisters around the world right now who uh, have to fight to be able to worship you and have to sneak and they have to hide and they have to work really hard and suffer to be able to gather together. God, we are so grateful for the insanity of privilege, the embarrassment of riches that you have given us. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. God, we ask Um, And and it sounds crazy coming from us sitting here in our climate-controlled, comfy room, but God, we ask for your strength and your endurance and your peace and your sustaining for our brothers and sisters right now. God, we ask that you would hold them gently. God, we ask that we would have true solidarity, true heart connection with our brothers and sisters as, as together as your church pursues after you and partakes in your mission and prepares for the amazing eternity that you have for us. Holy Spirit, anoint this time. Be our disciple be our preacher. Speak to us through your word. Cut us where we need to be cut. Convict us, teach us, remind us. And God, let us leave here this morning having spent our morning with you. We love you, Jesus. So We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It's a short one today, so I'll make sure we're all turned there. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 5, we read this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this is the word of the Lord. Can I read that one more time? It was just a little too short. Can, can, we, can we step back in that again? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. So we're going to talk today about what it means to to walk in Christ as you have received him, right? That's kind of the thesis of Colossians, specifically in how you engage the lost and dead and dying world around you. What does it mean to walk in Christ to to rock in Christ as you've received him to continue in this amazing thing that is Christianity that is the kingdom of God that is gospel living when you are in the world surrounded by people who are not a part of this kingdom what does it mean to participate in the mission of God what does it mean to walk with wisdom for outsiders so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this short little text. We're going to put it in the context of all of Colossians. That's going to give us a couple little cultural historical pieces that we need to flesh out. But ultimately, this is going to connect us to two specific teachings Jesus gave, one in Matthew, one in Luke. And I think, that'll, give, I think that'll, that'll leave us with enough to stew on as we kind of limp out of this space this morning. Uh, and hopefully, after sharing, communion, and leaving, we can, can walk out of here in joy and unity for the amazing things God has called his church to do. Sound good? Rock and roll. So, just... A reminder, we're in this letter to the Colossian church. And I know I keep saying this each week, but I, I do think it's actually really important for us to remind ourselves that, that we're not just, we're not, it's not like Paul, right, was thinking of Red Tree right now in West County in 2020 when he wrote these words. Like we, as it's important for us to do some work to continually remind ourselves that, that we're engaging a text uh, that God supernaturally preserved from, from a different time in a different context right? So so here's this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to this church that was struggling with syncretistic heresy. They They were taking aspects of pagan and Jewish practices, and they were mixing them into Christianity until what they had left on the other side was no longer Christianity. So their pastor, a guy named Epaphras, leaves and goes and finds Paul and begs Paul to write this letter, uh, exhorting and, and, and engaging and challenging this church to return back to the gospel. So that's where we get Colossians, and Paul writes this letter, and essentially what he does is this massive offensive where he spends like half the letter simply talking about the sufficiency and excellency of Jesus. Chapter 1, chapter 2 is just Paul over and over and over talking about how good, how sufficient, how excellent Jesus is. His finished and accomplished work on the cross, his perfect person, his resurrection, his deity, his authority, all of these things are totally sufficient to answer the needs and longings and hurts of the human heart. You don't need anything else. And so he gives them this line in chapter two where he says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. You don't need anything else. There's nothing you need to add to your faith. And so in the midst of this, he, he does like call out the specific heresy, but then, then he begins to give these really specific instructions of what it actually means to walk in Christ. What does it mean to continue in the sufficiency of Jesus, to let this finished work of Jesus, his person, his deity, his authority, actually affect the day-to-day living of your life? And so he gets really intimate and really personal as we move through chapter 3. And he talks about issues of personal holiness. And he talks about how the gospel speaks into sexual integrity and expressions of holiness. And he works through these things that are, that are really intimate and really challenging, And then he expands them out and talks about communal holiness, how your personal holiness should affect the holiness of the church. And the way we live and operate together as the family of Christ should be expressions of holiness through unity and through radical forgiveness and through engagement with the word and engagement with the spirit. And then he moves on even further as he ends out chapter 3, and he talks about how the way of Christ, this holiness, moves from your own heart to your church family to your larger family and work context, that the way you engage your marriage, your singleness, your parenting, your coworkers, all should be influenced, should be affected, should be changed by the person and work of Jesus called holiness, holiness in your own heart, holiness in your church life, holiness in your family life, holiness in your work life. This is what it means to walk in Christ as you've received him. And then in chapter 4, Paul finally explains the idea of walking in Christ, this kingdom holiness, outside of the church and into the mission of God. How does this holiness move outside of our community and into the larger world? And so we ask the church to pray for him. And I love that this is the way... Paul chooses to talk about holiness, our holiness and our, our connection to Christ is expressed to outsiders, is he shares a prayer request. And he asks this heretical church to pray for him, to pray for him personally, but also to pray for his ministry, to pray for doors to be opened, for ears to be opened, for, for avenues of proclamation. He invites this church into the inner workings of his Ministry. And we could we could spend a whole extra week talking about the fact that Paul was in prison being mistreated and, and abused and unjustly treated. And his prayer request was that God would open up more avenues for him to proclaim the gospel, not that he would receive justice. <laughs> Come on. But he asked this church to pray for him in the midst of his suffering that the kingdom might be advanced. And by the way, Matt did an amazing treatment on this. Text and this idea of prayer and kingdom prayer last week. I'm not gonna re-preach that as much as I may be tempted to. I'm not gonna re-preach that. It was amazing. You can listen to it. And by the way, if God did something heavy in your heart regarding your prayer life and what it means to walk in holiness through prayer, then I would strongly encourage you to set aside and prioritize the time to come to the prayer meeting that Craig is leading on Sunday mornings. Because that is how you grow in your prayer life is by participation you show up and you listen and you learn and you engage in prayer. And that time is set aside and it's there. And it was beautiful this morning. So if God did something in your heart about prayer, uh, we'll see you next Sunday. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> like, let's, let's do this. But he asked God to, 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 he asked this church to pray for him. Whoa, that was bad total brain fart. He asked his church to pray for him, for God to open up avenues for his ministry to continue. And, and, and I want to I stop here for just a second because I think it's important to point something out. It's important to point something out. He, he's just now at the end of the letter turning this teaching outward, turning it from inward to the inner life of the church, to the inner working of the believer, to the outward expression of this church. I think it's important to know this, that it's natural to turn inward as an individual or as a church when hard things happen. It's really natural. This church had been through a lot. It was bad enough that their pastor left to go tattle on them, right? This church had been going through some hard stuff, and so the majority of the ministry, the teaching, the exhortation that Paul gives in this letter is very inward to the life of this church. And that's pretty natural, In fact, if we think about it, the kingdom life starts out pretty inwardly. It's you and the Holy Spirit, and then it's your church and the Holy Spirit. And that, that really is like, that's a natural, okay thing, but that is not the ending point of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not terminate on your personal experience with Christ. It may start there. And thus it may be natural after a season of hardship or suffering to turn inward, but you cannot stay there. Beloved, if your experience of God, if your experience of holiness and growth and passion in the Spirit terminates on yourself, I'm going to say this bluntly because we all need to hear it, you're doing it wrong. That is not how it works. It's not how it works. It begins here. But God works through us, turn us outward, because he is passionate about this dead and dying and lost and hurting world. And he loves every single creature on this planet with a passion and a ferocity that we cannot understand. He's left us here for a reason. I wonder how much Red Tree needs this same reminder that the Colossian church needs. You know, I haven't been here super long, right? Like, God brought our family here in 2015, which is not a super long time ago. And a lot of you have been here longer than I have, but man, this was a different place in January of 2015. Literally, physically, we weren't in this place, right? But, but this was a different community back then. And we've walked through a lot of stuff, a lot of changes, a lot of beautiful things that we celebrate, a lot of hard and painful things that left wounds and hurt. I'm just going to say it's natural. It's natural and okay to to weather something painful, weather something heavy, have it turn you inward a little bit, sit for a moment and process that bring that before Christ and nurse those wounds with him. That is natural and good and holy as we see. But we don't get to stay there. We don't get to stay there. And if we force ourselves to stay there, it makes it worse. Because your faith is never meant to terminate on you. And Red Tree's experience of the kingdom was never meant to terminate on you. On Red Tree. We have been called to something bigger, called to the kingdom of God, called to the work, to join with Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. Come on. Which brings us to today. He gives this prayer request, he invites them into his ministry, and then he gives this little bitty text where he challenges this church on how they're going to engage the community around them. Little bitty text. One of the things they talk about in Bible study is proportion, what proportion is given to different topics and ideas, right? A big chunk of this book is set aside for the excellency and sufficiency and wonder of Jesus. A massive chunk of this book is set aside for internal concerns of personal and communal and family holiness. Two little sentences are set aside for how the church engages the lost world. And it's important to note that. That's where this church was at. They need to do some heart work, some inside work. But Paul doesn't let them get out of it scot-free. He doesn't let them deal with those deep heart wounds and those issues of repentance without reminding them of the truth of their purpose and their identity as ambassadors of Christ. Christ. See, this section is the closing of the teaching in the book. I don't know if you guys noticed this, right? Like, we've only got essentially two more weeks in this whole study. Like, after this section, he just goes to some personal greetings, and he starts giving some instructions about different specific people. This is the closing of the formal letter to the Colossians. This is how, this is how Paul ends out this entire thing, is with this. And this is the closing to the larger section of chapters two and three about uh, how we walk in holiness. Paul hearkens back in chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And here he brings us back to that idea as he's closing out the instruction by saying, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And there's something, by the way, important about that word walk. It's it's reminding us that our participation in the kingdom life is an active participation. It's an active participation. You have been saved into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. You have been given a citizenship in a new community that is the family of Jesus. You have been called and set aside for an eternal kingdom, an eternal relationship, an eternal family, an eternal engagement community with God's people. But that is active. That's that's not just like Okay, yeah, you're a Christian now, so like chill. Eventually God will turn on his holy vacuum cleaner and suck you up and like we'll we'll get going with eternity. No, you have been you have been made into something new for a new and specific purpose. And that purpose is the kingdom. And that takes action, takes energy, takes time, takes commitment. It 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 spends you. It exerts you. It empties you out. You know, Paul uses this image of athletes running a race to talk about our journey of faith. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm obviously really big into running. Um, Why are you laughing? Um, When you have a really long endurance race and you get to the end, you don't want to cross the finish line and be like, I feel great. I could do like another mile. No, 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 no. You spend yourself. You empty yourself. You roll across that finish line completely and totally spent. You give every ounce of energy you have to cross the finish line. Beloved, that is your life here on earth. You spend yourself for the kingdom because you have been promised eternity you have been granted eternal perfection. What is this life in comparison? What are the comforts of this life in comparison? What is the wealth in this life in comparison? What is the depth of relationship and intimacy in this life in comparison to eternity with Christ? This is why Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And that's not just talking about being greedy with your money. That's talking about the amount of our identity and the amount of weight we put on the experience of this life. That speaks to the ways we idolize our marriage and the ways we idolize our children and our family and our comfort and our experience and our wealth and our retirement, all of those things, beloved, you get to spend those for the kingdom. To eke over that finish line, emptied out, and enter into eternity of perfection with your king. Come on. Now, as I said that, some of us are like, okay, cool. I get that, right? Like, I know that's a cool say that in church thing. But like, in my heart, I'm like, mm, that sounds awful. <laughs> Why would God give me this marriage? And this? like, those things are sacred and those things are important. And what you're saying sounds, it sounds pretty bad. That sounds like something that I, I don't necessarily want to do. What do you do with that tension? Because I'm being real with you guys. Like, that—that that is a tension. I think it's what we need to talk about here for a minute. I think we need to talk about this idea of the mission of God and how we're invited into it. I, I, w- I want to walk through this text and kind of bring us back to some of the specific words Paul chooses to use, and I think it'll illuminate some of some of why the New Testament seems to use such extreme language for us living our life here on earth in preparation for eternity. So, he says, be wise. Walk in wisdom with outsiders. I think this is a great word to pause us. Walk in wisdom with outsiders. Think about the actual relationships you have in your life right now with people who don't know Jesus and are not given over to the kingdom. Some of them I'm sure you're related to, some of them you might work with. Some of them might be your neighbors. Some of them might, you, you might go to school with. They might be friends, whatever. But, but you have relationships with people who don't know and love Jesus. How do you define those relationships? How wise are you in those relationships? How much discernment do you use in the time you spend, in the words you speak, in the things you participate in? Would the folk who don't know Jesus but know you, would they look at your friendship and think, man, the amount of wisdom that person brings to my life, the amount of wisdom and discernment they treat me with, it's like a defining characteristic of the relationship. I think that's worth considering. I think it's worth considering and pausing there. And there's a reason by the way, there's a reason that Paul uses the word wisdom, this slow, thoughtful, intentional word, and it's the next phrase. Make the best use of the time. The the literal Greek phrase there, by the way, is buy as much time as you can afford. That's a good phrase, right? Make the most of the time, make the best use of the time. Beloved, I don't want to sound dire with you, but you know that this present world is passing away, yes? You know that what we are living in is temporary, and what we have been called to is eternal. That's like, that's a drastic difference. We live in a temporal world that is passing away, that has been ruined and broken and cursed by sin, and everything you know and love is rotting and will go away. Dang. (laughs) But that's real. We have no clue how much time we've been given in this world. We have no clue how much time those around us whom we love and care have been given in this world. Now, I know even as I say that, some of my reform friends in the room are like triggering certain theologies, and you're like, well, actually, God's sovereign, so we don't have to be worried about the amount of time. Okay, fine, sure, theologically, I'm with you. But you know, that's why the Reformers told their churches that the Great Commission didn't apply to them, Right? That they actually didn't have to go and make disciples because God was going to save who he wanted to save, and that missions and evangelism were purposeless. Right? And that's why the Protestant church literally didn't have missionaries for the first, like, 200 years it existed, because they got together and, like, pushed their glasses up around their theology and said, Well, it's fine. We don't have to share our faith. We don't have to worry about it because God's sovereign, and he'll sovereignly save who he wants to. Beloved, Jesus uses pretty intense terms surrounding the time. Make the most of the time. It is limited. God has invited you, you, to be his ambassador to a lost and dead world. God is sovereign. Uh, You are not. You don't know the time. You don't know the hour. You don't know the day. But you're the one who's been given the ambassador's card. So go, go and proclaim and give yourself to that work fully and completely because it is worthy of your life. Let your speech always be gracious. We could do a series of sermons on this phrase, so I'm just going to say it again. Let your speech always be gracious. Beloved of Jesus, this is not a suggestion and this is not an option. This is a command. You are to engage the lost world with grace. With grace. This means something. This means that when you engage people who who don't know Jesus and haven't received salvation and life from him and haven't received the call to personal and communal holiness as you have, that you are not shocked or judgmental when your non-Christian friends act like non-Christians. This means that you give the same come as you are invitation that you received from Jesus. Beloved, not many of us were wise by human standards. Not many of us were of noble birth. Not many of us were great people when Christ called us. You were invited in the midst of your death and transgressions to come exactly as you are before a holy and righteous God and receive a life. Can you not give the same invitation? Can you not engage Those around you with grace and patience and love, because that's what you received. Uh, Really quick, it says always. I know that's like an extreme word, but can we hear that again? It says always, always. Not like when it strikes your fancy, not when you're feeling spiritually like strong enough to be gracious, not when the person hasn't pushed your buttons, not when the person has actually repented of some of that behavior and they've decided to stop wronging you or treating you poorly. No, always, always. When Peter asked Jesus how often he should engage with forgiveness and grace, Jesus said, always. Always, every time. Let, your, let injustice be done to you over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And respond with grace and forgiveness because that's what you received. Back in 2007, the Barna Research Group did this massive three year study of Gen Xers and Millennials about their understanding of the church. It's called the Unchristian Research Study, done by Barna. You can Google it and look it up. And so uh, they they came up with the top, like, 20 perceptions that uh, Gen Xers and Millennials who are not Christians have of the Christian faith. The top 20 things that Gen X and Millennials associate with Christianity, uh, like 17 of the 20 were negative, just so you know. 87% of those surveyed identified the Christian movement as overly judgmental. 87%. That means if you leave this space and you're talking to someone between the age of 20 and 50, nine out of 10 of them assume out of the gate that you are going to judge them. You hear that? Nine out of 10. 87%. That's a lot of people who you are starting with an uphill battle where they assume that you're judging them and thinking less of them. Beloved, always be gracious. Always. I love this one Season your speech with salt. This is a strange phrase, and I don't want us to stay here too long, but this is this amazing analogy that's used multiple times in the New Testament, and it had legs in the first century, and so it would, be, it would behoove us to understand it uh, a little better. In Matthew 5, Jesus, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, said this, that you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And this is verse 16 in chapter 5 of Matthew. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. This image of salt and light, right, this is something that, that we've, we've probably heard before connected to the Christian walk. And And man, there's there's a lot we could do with this, but I, I just want to give us like a little window into the importance of salt in the first century. So I got a picture here uh, of some salt uh, from the, the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is like the saltiest uh, body of water. We don't? Oh, man. Well, you can imagine it. It's like a picture of water, and there's a bunch of salt. You got it? All right, cool. All right, cool. See, if my younger brother Luke was here, I would have put his picture up and said, this is the picture of saltiness. Um, but he's not here, and he doesn't even listen to the podcast, so this, that moment was wasted. Anyway, uh, anyway, what is going on here? Dead Sea is this really salty body of water, and they would gather salt from it by, uh, as as the water goes down with tide, uh, the water evaporates, and these balls of salt form on the beach, and you can pick them up. They're like between the size of a golf ball and a softball, and and, and they would gather them and use them for all sorts of things. Salt um, can be used as a disinfectant. It can be used to preserve food in an era where you don't have access to refrigeration. Um, It it was used in ceremonial things for sacrifices. It was used as currency in some parts of Palestine and those things. Salt is a really important thing. But the one that I want to focus on is this. Salt was used as a seasoning by people who were too poor to afford other seasonings. (laughs) I can't can't go out and buy vanilla beans and lavender. But, you know, there's salt on the ground outside, so I can use that. Which, really quick, I I, I need to not derail us here. But salt's just a rock. And at some point, someone was like, we should put these rocks on our food because they taste good. And they don't do that with any other rocks. And maybe, it's, maybe other rocks taste good, and we don't know. Because I'm not trying it. Because I'm not picking up rocks and putting it on my food. But salt somehow made someone at some point saw this weird dirt rock like on the beach, and they're like, I'm grinding this up and putting it on my food. And look at that. Changed the whole world. Anyway, here's the thing about salt you need to know. And this is the simplest way to say it. Salt makes stuff better. It just does. If you don't believe me, go home and pop some popcorn. Put no salt on that bad boy. No butter either, because butter has salt in it. Just eat that stuff dry. <laughs> that's, not, that's not good. That's not a good experience. Salt makes stuff better. It's why we put it in everything. We love that sweet salty rock. salt makes stuff better which is why we're told to season our speech with salt told to season our speech with salt make your words taste better when you're engaging someone who doesn't know Jesus how good do your words taste Because here's the thing, if you are going out into the lost and dying world and proclaiming the truth of Christ, you know that the gospel is hard, and then it cuts people in their sin, and it convicts, and it's painful, and it's offensive. Paul uses in a different letter, he says, to people who aren't ready, the gospel smells like rotting meat. But we're to make our words salty. We're to make our words taste good. Beloved, that takes wisdom and grace and intentionality and thoughtfulness. I want you to hear this. When God saved you, He left you here. I don't know if you noticed that. When you got saved, you didn't immediately like transmutate into heaven. You're still here. And he left you here for a purpose and for a reason. But he did not leave you here that you might go out into the world and do and say whatever you please. That's simply not the case. You're to use wisdom and grace in your speech. You're to engage the world with kindness, with winsomeness. Your words are to be salty Man, I want you to think about those people in your life who don't know Jesus, those friends, those family, those neighbors, those coworkers. Think about how they understand you and their relationship to you. Think about the last conversation you had with them. What are the words they're using to describe you, to describe that relationship? It's gracious and kind and winsome. Is that coming out? Beloved, this is worth our considering. Because the time is short. The time is short. And you are surrounded. You are surrounded by people who are dead in their transgressions. Who if something does not change, if someone does not intervene in their life, the the direction they're heading with their life will lead them into direct confrontation with the wrath of a holy and righteous God. The Scripture says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. But that is the fate of people that you know and love. They're walking that way. Their lives are, the trajectory of their lives is toward the wrath of God. And you don't know how long they have. And you've been given the ambassador's card to go and be gracious and be salty, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The Gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into the human experience. It speaks in ways that challenge the gospel of our culture, the gospel of our world, and those differences will create conflicts and questions. And it's important to ask yourself whether or not you are prepared to answer folk how you ought. Because I'm telling you, when the questions of life, when the concerns of the human heart come to light, and you are asked the real questions about the tension between the teaching of the kingdom and the teaching of our world, there is a way you ought to answer. (laughs) There is a way you ought to answer. Are you prepared? Are you ready? Can you give an answer as you ought? I want you to think on this for a moment. The gospel is really cantankerous. And it makes these really strong assertions about the human experience, about human ethics, about human morality, about human interaction that run really contrary to the gospel and the teachings and the thoughts of our world and our culture and our friends. You know, it's, it's weird to say it this way. It's weird to say it this way. But the majority of the people you're going to engage who don't know Jesus, they're not sitting in some posture where they're angry and dismissive and frustrated with Christianity. Some will be. But the majority will not be. The majority will just be incredibly apathetic to your faith. Incredibly apathetic. Because they've looked at the questions and the longings of their heart and what they understand of Christianity, whether accurate or not, they believe that it does not have sufficient answers for the question of their heart. And so they've become apathetic to it. It is another voice in the thousands of competing voices and advertisements in their head, and nothing sets it apart. And so it just falls into the white noise of modern Western life that is the majority of people you will engage when you leave this space they're not mad at you they don't have a chip on their shoulder about you being a christian and them not being a christian they're not fighting a culture war with you they just don't really care you can do you and they'll do them and it's good but beloved we know better we know better We know that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. We know that he actually speaks into the longings of the human heart. We know that the message of the gospel is actually sufficient to answer every question the human heart has. We know that. But they don't. And you, beloved of Jesus Christ, are the one that he has placed in their life. You are the one who he has put in their neighborhood and their school and their job and their friend circle and their hobby. You are the one there who knows the truth. You know that Christ is actually sufficient. You know that he actually answers the longings of the heart. That he actually speaks to the deepest wounds and pains and insecurities and all of those things and he's placed you in their life. You're the ambassador. You're the speaker. You are the missionary. You are the missionary. I'm the missionary. We are the missionaries. In just a few weeks after Easter, we're going to do this series where we talk about some of this and talk about some of the questions our culture is answer, asking and, and where we're going to talk about the bigness of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus to speak into some of these things. And, 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 and that'll, be, that'll be cool and that'll be, I think that'll be beneficial for us. And I think it'll be fruitful for us to sit back and ponder some of the ways that the, the gospel and Jesus answers to the longings of the human heart have been dismissed. I think it'll be beneficial. But when it comes down to it, beloved, you are the missionary put in someone's life. And you know the truth. You are a complex person with a mixture of wounds and hurts and joys and sorrows and Jesus has met you and saved you and called you from death to life and he has answered the deepest longings of your heart and he has given you joy and purpose and meaning and then he has placed you in that person's life. Come on. There is no escaping the simple reality that you are Jesus' mouthpiece, that you are his ambassador. You know, there is a direct line of discipleship from Jesus straight to you. Do you know that? That Jesus came into earth with this amazing message of the kingdom of God and he faithfully handed it to the twelve that God had given him. And they went and they preserved and kept that sacred message and they faithfully handed it to those who were in their life. And they faithfully handed it, and they faithfully handed it, and they faithfully handed it. The early church, the church fathers used this phrase, they called the rule of faith, where they said our role is to faithfully preserve and hand off the gospel as given from Jesus to the apostles and the apostles to us. And that gospel has been preserved and has been handed off faithfully from generation to generation of disciples, leading back from Jesus himself to you. You have been handed that sacred gospel, supernaturally preserved by God himself and faithfully given to you, and you are invited, invited to hand it off to other people. I want to end our time with one of my favorite parables. This is from Luke 14. I'm just going to read it to you guys. I need to go quick. Jesus was sitting at a party with a bunch of rich people, and uh, they were asking him some questions about the kingdom of God, and there was kind of this back and forth, and Jesus finally responds with this parable. This is Luke 14 in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, oh, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. and I, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, Well, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, but still there is room. And the master said to the servant, then go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I hope this needs a little commentary for us this morning. Our Father has prepared an amazing banquet. In Revelation, it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Beloved, you have been invited. Us, the poor, the blind, the crippled, us us who didn't deserve, us who could not bring ourselves to the table, us who were given a come-as-you-are invitation, we have been brought into the family and ushered into this amazing banquet. And the master of the banquet has looked around and said, there's still empty seats. Go get more people. Compel them. Beloved, compel them. The master of the feast wants his generosity to be enjoyed by more. Not an empty seat in the hall. Go. I don't care where you go. Go into the alleys. Go into the highways. Go far. Go close. Find the marginalized. Find the people no one cares about. Compel them to come to my house and enjoy my generosity. Beloved, this is You and me. You have been sovereignly preserved in this world for this purpose. Because there is still room. Because there is still room. Beloved, hear that again. There is still room. There is still room. The generosity of our master is huge. There's a room at the party. So we might go and we might compel more and more to come, to experience his generosity. So Red Train, may we be people, <laughs> may we be people go out into the byways and into the highways and the hedges and the streets and the alleys who make the best of the time who walk in wisdom who speak always with grace and we be salt in a dead and dying world because there is still room beloved this work is worth giving your life to. It's real. It's big. And when I said at the beginning that some of us don't like to have our idols of good and wonderful things p- poked at, and we don't like to have our idols of a comfortable, awesome American life poked at, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. But beloved, there's still room. There's still room. Why would we not make the most of the time? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a time where we sit and pray and respond to what God's saying to us. We have a couple of prayer counselors today, Kim and Matt, if you guys want to stand up so people can see you. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give some space for us to uh, just be honest with Jesus for a couple of minutes. Is that cool? Can we just find some space in this room to be with Jesus for a moment? If you can do that in your chair where you're sitting, that's fine. If you need to find some space to get on your knees, if you need to get a little more alone, that's fine. If you need a human being to pray over you because you just can't quite put some words to what you're feeling right now. And come find one of our prayer counselors. Come find one of your pastors. But let's let's take a few minutes to be in this with Jesus. To be confessional with him. To to come to him with honesty about the things we actually love. And the things we're actually giving our time and our energy to. I hope you don't feel beat up right now. Because I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you. But we are supposed to hear this. And we are supposed to be challenged and cut by this. We are a part of this church. And this call is for us. This call is for us. Not the missionaries on the field, them too. Not just the persecuted church whose faith is so awesome and they, and they suffer. No, this is, this is for us too. And we need to feel this. I'd invite you to come before Jesus and be honest with him because he already knows. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer and then I'll close out this time for us and we'll, we'll sing a song and then we'll take communion.